And I'm so excited to be with you here this morning, and I just got to tell you that um, I'm always a little nervous before I speak, um, but today is just an exception, <laughs> and it's just worse than it ever is. <sighs> and so, <laughs> I have written everything down, and if, if I look like I'm reading a lot, it's because I am. And um, Nisa told me, you got 40 minutes. You can't go 42. If you do, I'll cut your mic. And, and I'm worried. So I'm going to just jump right in. And I'm going to start um, by telling you a story. And it's a story about my mom. Um, she was in her mid-teens, early teens, later teens, but she was in high school, and she began to really struggle with severe anxiety. And every little thing would just send her into a panic and a real sense of failure and fear. And it was especially bad when it came to school, like with homework and tests and those kind of things. And it was on one occasion like this that she was anticipating a test coming up the next day and she was just falling apart. And her mom, my grandma, very godly woman, took her aside and said, Donna, if you do not let the Lord help you overcome this, you will never make it through life. And that night, as my mom was reading her Bible, the Lord led her to a verse that changed everything. And it's in Isaiah 26, verse 3. And it says this. It says, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you. All whose thoughts are fixed on you. And that night as my mom was preparing for the test and the next day as she took it, she put those words into practice. And instead of fixing her thoughts on everything that could go wrong, you know, that she might fail the test, that she wouldn't have studied what she needed to study, all of those things, she just put her trust in God and she fixed her thoughts on Jesus. And she made it through the test. And you know what? She made it through high school. And she made it through raising a family. And she made it through being a preacher's wife and being a missionary for many years, traveling around the world. And she made it through 20-plus years of teaching two- and three-year-old Sunday school class. <laughs> and now she's in retirement and in Alaska, and she's making it through even there. And those of you who know her would probably think that I'm making this story up because you have probably never seen my mom. I have almost never seen my mom have an anxious moment about anything because she put that verse into her heart and her life and she fixed her thoughts and she trusted God. And that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm just going to trust him that whatever comes off of this page, that it will speak to you. 
that the Lord will speak to you. Because some of you, we're going to be talking about Joseph, and some of you in here have probably heard so many stories about Joseph for so much, you know every single detail. There's nothing possibly you could learn. Then there's probably others of you who are going, who's Joseph? Or maybe the details of his life are sketchy at best. You get him mixed up with Moses and Abraham and all those other guys, Jacob. But we're going to talk about Joseph, and I believe that God has something specific to say to each one of us, each one of you. And so I always start my messages out this way, and I'm not going to change today. But if you just bow your heads with me and we just pray these four simple words, Lord, speak to me. Make it personal for me today, Lord. Don't let me leave here today without hearing the message that you specifically have for me. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. So I want to give you just a little bit of backstory here. Um, By the way, uh, the story of Joseph is 13 chapters long. Uh, We're going to talk about it, but we're not going to read all of that this morning, so just letting you know. But Joseph was a direct descendant of the three biggies, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Abraham was his great-grandfather, Isaac was his grandfather, and through the early years of Joseph's life, Isaac was actually living with Jacob, and so he would have gotten to personally know Isaac. And then there was Jacob. Jacob was his father, and Jacob was a man of God. It took him a while to get there, but he did. And it takes all of us a little while to get there, but Jacob has a very interesting story when it comes to wives and sons. He was in love with a woman named Rachel, and she had an older sister named Leah, and they were both the daughters of Laban. And Jacob loved Rachel, and he made a deal with Rachel's dad that he would work seven years for him in exchange for Rachel's hand in marriage. And the Bible says that the love he had for her was so strong that those seven years seemed but just a day. Now that is a strong love. But the custom of the day was that it was bad form for the younger girl, the younger sister, to marry before the older sister did. So Laban tricked Jacob, and he ended up marrying Leah instead. Now, you tell me how that happens, all right? But it was something about in the dark and at night, and next morning, it was Leah and not Rachel. And Jacob was furious. And when he confronted Laban about it, another deal was made that he could have both daughters by the end of the week if he would just consent to work another seven years. And so that's what Jacob did. And the Bible says that he, in these exact words, he loved Rachel much more than Leah. Favoritism. And so Leah began to have children, and um, she had a lot of children, sons, one right after the other. But Rachel was barren. 
And because of this, she decided to give her maidservant, her servant to Jacob, so that he could have sons with her. And so her maidservant had two more sons. And this made Leah upset, so because she wasn't having children anymore, she gave her servant to Jacob, and they had two more sons. And finally, after all of that, Rachel gets pregnant, and our man Joseph is born. And as you can imagine, he was dad's favorite son from dad's favorite wife. So we're going to pick up the story in Genesis chapter 37. And we're starting Genesis chapter 37, and when we get to the end of that, chapter 38, we're going to skip over it. It's a whole different story. It's kind of added and tucked in there. It doesn't have to do with Joseph, and so we're going to skip over it for today. But these are some things you need to know about Joe. So starting in chapter 37, and I hope you have your Bibles with you this morning. If you do, you'll want to turn there. It's the very first book in the Bible, so it's easy to find. And it's chapter 37, starting with verse 1. It says, So Jacob settled again in the land of Canaan, where his father had lived as a foreigner. And this is the account of Jacob and his family. When Joseph was 17 years old, he often tended his father's flock. He worked for his half-brothers, the sons of his father's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah, and they were the maidservants. But Joseph reported to his father some of the bad things that his brothers were doing. And Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his other children because Jacob, or Joseph, I'm going to get those two mixed up, so if I do, just you know which one I'm talking about, okay? Joseph had been born to him in his old age. So one day, Jacob had a special gift made for Joseph, a beautiful robe. But his brothers hated Joseph because their father loved him more than the rest of them. And they couldn't say a kind word to him. All right, so let's see. He was 17. He's the favorite. He's a good worker, he's obedient, he stays out of trouble, unlike his other brothers. And you can read about that in chapter 34 and 35. And he was loyal and faithful to his father. He was bringing bad reports about his brothers. So he was kind of, you could call him a tattletale, but you know, sometimes bad reports need to be given even though they're not popular because it's just the right thing to do. So you can take it either way. The Bible doesn't really say. But I want you to know, if you are a parent in here today, your favorite son is whichever one is obeying you at the time. <laughs> and Joseph was that son. Uh, he was obviously the favorite son of Jacob. And he was the one most likely to receive the greatest inheritance. And the reason why we know this is because of this coat. This coat that Jacob gave to Joseph. Now, it says here that it's just a beautiful robe, but there was a little bit more to it than that. You see, in that day, a normal tunic would have been short-sleeved, just above the knee, and it would have been very plain because it's the one, it's the one you worked in every day. And so you needed to be able to... But this coat that he gave him was long-sleeved, and it was ankle-length, and it was beautiful. Some, some versions say it was a colorful robe. It was beautiful. It was the kind that a prince would wear, royalty would wear. It was the kind that said, 
I'm in charge. I'm the supervisor, and you are the working class. And so this coat really got Joseph into a lot of trouble because his brothers hated him, not just for the coat, but for what it represented. So he was the favorite son. The second thing you need to know about Joe is that he has a godly foundation. He had this foundation passed on to him from his father Jacob. I mean, Joseph had seen Jacob walk with God. He had heard the covenants that God had given to his ancestors. He knew the promises of God given directly to Jacob. He knew about Jacob's dreams. He knew about how Jacob wrestled with God all night and how God had changed his name and sent him to the land of Canaan. And so Joseph believed in God, Jehovah. He had a godly foundation. And then the third thing you need to know about Joe is that he had a divine calling on his life. And let's pick it up in chapter 37, verse 5. And it says, One night Joseph had a dream. And when he told his brothers about it, they hated him more than ever. Listen to this dream, he said. We were out in the field tying up bundles of grain, and suddenly my bundle stood up, and your bundles all gathered around and bowed low before mine. Now his brothers responded, So you think you will be our king, do you? Do you actually think you will reign over us? And they hated him all the more because of his dreams and the way he talked about them. And soon Joseph had another dream, and again he told his brothers about it. And he said, listen, I've had another dream. And I can imagine they're going, oh, great, you've had another dream. And he said, this time the sun and the moon and 11 stars bowed low before me. And this time he told the dream to his father as well, as to his brothers. But his father scolded him. What kind of a dream is that, he asked. Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow to the ground before you? But while his brothers were jealous of Joseph, his father wondered what the dreams meant. Now, in the Old Testament, dreams carry a lot of weight. They're a form of divine communication, and especially if the dream is given twice, and these dreams were. These dreams called Joseph to be a leader, and specifically to be the leader of his family. And the responses of the brothers versus his dad, Jacob, were completely opposite. The brothers were so jealous and full of hatred that they missed a very important part of the revelation. And that is that they would too be rulers. You see, they were the 11 stars, and in that day, stars symbolized leadership. And also, they were tying up their grain, which symbolized productivity and prosperity. But the brothers didn't see any of that. All they saw was Joseph lifted up. And they were mad, and they, rather than recognize God's hand in the dream, they just wanted to get rid of the dreamer and prevent the dream from being fulfilled. Now, Jacob's response was that he scolded Joseph, But privately, he really wondered what it meant. You see, Jacob knew that God would choose the next leader of the family. 
he knew that God could choose the younger son to rule over the older sons, and that God could reveal all this in a dream. And you know why, Joseph, why Jacob knew that? Because that's exactly what had happened to him in his life. So Joseph was the favorite. He was a, had a godly foundation, and he had a divine calling on his life. But he has no idea how his life is about to change. And we're going to skip over now. Uh, we're actually, we're going to go a little further down in chapter 37. But how many of you ever felt like your life is a roller coaster? Like, have you ever felt like, oh, my life is, I've, I feel like that all the time. Joseph's life is about to become a roller coaster. And that's your first point, roller coaster of life, if you're taking notes. And so, you know, on a roller coaster, you get in, you get strapped in, and then you kind of sit almost face up, and you start taking this steep uphill climb to get to the top of the roller coaster. And I think this first thing that happened to Joseph is actually that steep climb. It's family dysfunction and his brother's rejection. And we're going to pick it up in chapter 37, verse 12, and read a few things here. So soon after this, after these dreams happened, Joseph's brothers went to pasture their father's flock at Shechem. And when they had been gone for some time, Jacob said to Joseph, your brothers are pasturing the sheep at Shechem, so get ready, and I'm going to send you to them. So Joseph says, I'm ready to go, faithful son. Go and see your brothers and the flocks how they're getting along, Jacob said, and then come back and bring me a report. So Jacob sent him on his way, and Joseph traveled to Shechem from their home in Hebron Valley, which was about a 50-mile journey, so at least a four-day's trip. And he gets to Shechem, and he can't find them, and so he asks somebody where they are, and he said, well, they've actually gone on down to Dothan, and Dothan is about another 15 miles. And so Joseph is traveling. I, I don't know why Jacob set him up like this. But he did. And so Joseph is going to find his brothers. And when Joseph's brothers, picking up in 18, when Joseph's brothers saw him coming, they recognized him in the distance. And as he approached, they made plans to kill him. And here comes the dreamer, they said. Come on, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns. We can tell our father a wild animal has eaten him, and then we'll see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard of their scheme and he came to Joseph's rescue, he said, let's, let's not kill him. He said, let's just, why, why would we want to shed any blood? Let's just throw him into this empty cistern here in the wilderness and then he'll die without our laying a hand on him. Wow, that's a great alternative. <laughs> but Reuben had a secret plan. He was going to come back and get Joseph out and return him to his father. So... We don't know where Reuben is during this time, but when Joseph arrived, his brothers ripped off his beautiful robe he was wearing, and then they grabbed him, and they threw him into the cistern just like the plan. The cistern was empty. It didn't have any water in it. And then they sat down to eat, and they, they looked up, and they saw a caravan of cam camels coming in the distance toward them. And it was a group of Ishmaelite traders taking a load of gum, balm, and aromatic resin from Gilead down to Egypt. And Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? We'd, ha we'd have to cover it up. And instead of hurting him, 
let's sell him to the Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So when the Ishmaelites, who were Midianite traders, came by, Joseph's, brother pulled, Joseph's brothers pulled him out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver. And the traders took him off to Egypt. Well, Reuben comes back and he finds that the cistern is empty and he just, what in the world has happened? And his brothers tell him what they've done. The boy is gone. And then the brothers come up with this cover-up. Let's kill a young goat and dip it in Joseph's robe in its, in its blood. And, and then I listened to this line. I had never caught this until last night. They sent the beautiful robe to their father, not in person, but with a message. And the message just said, look at what we've found. Is, does this belong to your son? And his father recognized it immediately, and he said, yeah, it's my son's robe. A wild animal must have eaten him. Joseph was clearly been torn to pieces. And then jo Jacob tore his clothes and dressed himself in burlap, and he mourned. The brothers were serious about getting rid of Joseph the dreamer. They weren't just talking, they did it, and they covered it up, and they sent it by father, to their father by a message. And then for the next 20 of the years, they lived with a lie and that guilt of Joseph on their conscience. And Jacob's reaction was he went into deep mourning and refused to be comforted. And for Joseph, it was complete and utter rejection and hurt and separation. So the first thing, the first roller coaster of life, that steep climb for Joseph was family dysfunction and brother's rejection. The second one is that he was sold twice into slavery. So we're going to pick up the story now in 39 chapter 1, where it says that Joseph was taken to Egypt by the Ishmaelite traders, and he was purchased by Potiphar, an Egyptian officer. He, Potiphar was the captain of the guard for Pharaoh's house. You see, you know how when you take that initial climb up the roller coaster and you know it's coming, right? You're going to get to the top and you're going to go over the edge. And that's just exactly what happened to Joseph. He went from chosen son to slave with one decision. Now think for a minute and just imagine how Joseph must have been feeling, what he was going through. It was about a 30-day journey through the desert to get to Egypt. And he was probably chained and on foot and being treated like a piece of baggage. And then once he gets there, it's like total culture shock. He went from being a country, nomadic, simple lifestyle to a huge city with pyramids and palaces. He was thrust into the world's most advanced civilization. He had a new language, new people, new work. And the key verse here, and let's look at it, it's in 39 verse 2. It says, the Lord was with Joseph. And so he succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. Potiphar noticed this and realized that the Lord was with Joseph, giving him success in everything he did. And this pleased Potiphar. So soon he made Joseph his personal attendant, and he put him in charge of his entire household and everything he owned. And from that day, Joseph was put in charge of his master's household and property. The Lord began to bless Potiphar's household for Joseph's sake. 
and all his household affairs ran smoothly and his crops and livestock flourished. So Potiphar gave Joseph complete administrative responsibility over everything he owned. And with Joseph there, he didn't worry about anything except what he was going to eat. What a great life. It's like camp, right? When you go to camp, you got three square meals a day and you didn't have to prepare them and you didn't have to plan them. And this is Potiphar's life right now. Joseph's doing good. Things are starting to look up. He's thinking this roller coaster isn't so bad after all. It's just a few loops and a little bit of waves. This is going to be okay. And the text doesn't say this, but I can imagine Joseph saying, I am going to be the best slave Egypt has ever had as he rises to the top. And then, just like any roller coaster, there comes a sharp turn. And that next turn we read about in chapter 39, verses 7 through 10. It says, Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man. And Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. But Joseph refused. Look, he told her, my master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held back nothing from me except you because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. And she kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of her way as much as possible. So the third thing there is Joseph faced intense temptation. Now this thing that... Potiphar's wife was asking him to do, it really wasn't an invitation. It wasn't like this seductive thing going on. It was a demand. It was a command of him as a slave. And Joseph handled it brilliantly. He says to her, my master, your husband, trusts me. And you are his wife. And it would be a wicked thing to do. And I won't sin against God. And so he kept out of her way. But then we read on. And it says, one day, however, no one else was around, and when he went to do his work in the house where she was, she came and she grabbed him by his cloak. Cloaks get him into trouble all the time. And she demanded, come on, sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away, but he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. And when she saw that she was holding his cloak and, he, and he, that he had fled, she called out to her servants, and soon as they came running, she said, look, and she made up this whole story. My husband has brought this Hebrew slave here to make fools of us. He came in here to my room to rape me, but I screamed. And when he heard my scream, he ran out and got away, but he left his cloak behind and she kept that cloak with her until her husband came home and she told him her story. So Joseph did all the right things. And the next thing that comes on a roller coaster, and this is the part of a roller coaster that makes me never go on them. 
and that is the deep dive. And there's one in every roller coaster. It's where your stomach stays at the top and your whole body leaves the rails and plummets to the ground. And this is exactly what happened to Joseph next because it says in verse 19 that Potiphar was furious when he heard his wife's story about how Joseph had treated her. And so he took Joseph immediately and threw him into prison where the king's prisoners were held and there he remained. He never got a trial. He never got to tell him his side of the story. Nothing. He was unjustly imprisoned, falsely accused, and thrown into prison. What would you be thinking at this point? <laughs> would you be thinking, this is not fair. I, I did what was right. I was doing what was right. I'm a follower of God even back when I was in Canaan. Is this where trusting God and following God has gotten me? What happened, God, to the dream that you gave me of being the leader of our family? And, and I don't know if Joseph was having any of these thoughts because the text doesn't say that. But what it does repeat three times for emphasis is that the Lord was with Joseph and showed him his faithful love. And the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And the Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Now the original text in these key passages where it talks about God being with him, it's not referring to a theoretical head knowledge of God. It's not referring to the omnipresence of God, where he's everywhere at all times. No, it's something much deeper. It's a deep, tangible presence of God. It's when God is active and involved. It's when he's working on Joseph's behalf. It's one where Joseph could feel and see God working on his behalf, giving him favor and blessing and raising him to the top and using him to bless others and bring peace and comfort to the worst of situations. And in verses 22 through 23, it says this, that before long the warden put Joseph in charge of all the other prisoners. Sound familiar? And over everything that happened in the prison, and the warden had no more worries because Joseph took care of everything. So Joseph had come to Egypt when he was about 17 years old, and he was probably around 20 when he was thrown into prison. And when we pick up again in chapter 40, he's been in prison for almost eight years. Eight years. And then two new inmates arrive, two new dreams are had with two very different outcomes. Let's take a look. Sometime later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker offended their royal master, and Pharaoh became angry, and he threw these two officials into prison where Joseph was in the palace of the captain guard. In other words, at a bad meal, he got upset with his kitchen staff, and he threw him into prison. And they remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. And while they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. And when Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they were both looking pretty upset, and he asked them, 
why do you look so worried today? Isn't that funny that he would take notice of that? And they replied, well, we both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. And so Joseph tells them that interpreting dreams is God's business. And so they tell Joseph their dreams, and uh, Joseph tells the the cupbearer tells his dream first, and so he tells him, he said, the cupbearer had a favorable outcome to his dream. He said that within three days, he would be restored to his position as chief cupbearer. And so what Joseph does is he says to the cupbearer, listen, since you're going to be back in Pharaoh's good graces, would you please remember me and do me a favor when things go well with you? Mention me to the Pharaoh so that he might let me out of this place because I was kidnapped from my household and my homeland and the land of the Hebrews and now I'm here in prison, but I did nothing to deserve it. So the baker hearing that thinks, oh, great. And so he tells Joseph his dream, but the baker, his outcome wasn't so good. In three days, he didn't gain back his favor And Pharaoh had him executed and had his body impaled on a pole. And that's exactly what happened. And the text doesn't say this, but I believe that these dreams reminded Joseph of his own dreams and how God had a calling on his life. And when he requested that the cupbearer would remember him, and his belief in God's providence and the way he had been seeing God work and lead in his life, I believe gave Joseph renewed hope that maybe soon the roller coaster would end and he would get off. But verse 41 opens with these very sad words. Two full years later. And I believe now, assured that the roller coaster would never come to an end, Joseph was waiting and forgotten. Says, Pharaoh's cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph and never gave him another thought. And I think this was probably the lowest point for Joseph. I know it is for me. When I face difficult situations or struggles, it's pretty easy at first to keep my thoughts focused on God, to praise him, to believe God is at work, to feel his presence with me. But the longer the waiting, the harder it gets to do that. The harder it gets to focus my thoughts. And I can start to question But you know, when I move my focus off God, it immediately goes to the muck and the mire of my situations and my hurts. And this is where I lose it. But Joseph chose to hang on. And the old saying is true that it is darkest before the dawn. And when you're riding a roller coaster, take this advice. Hang on, because the only way to get hurt on a roller coaster is to get off before the end. So, after almost 13 years on the roller coaster, 13 years of slavery, temptation, false accusations, and prison, Pharaoh has two dreams. And Joseph is 30 years old when he's finally brought to Pharaoh, and it's not to stand trial, it's not to plead his case, and it's not to be set free, 
but it's to interpret a dream. And I love how Joseph responds when Pharaoh says, I hear that you can interpret dreams. And we're going to skip over now to chapter 41. And in verse 16, Joseph says this. It says, it's beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied, but God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. So now we're going to read verses 25 through 41. So follow along. We're going to try to do it really quick. Joseph responded, both of Pharaoh's dreams, because he tells him about his dreams, and he tells him that, um, we'll, we'll, just, we'll just pick up there. He says, Joseph, Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. There are seven healthy cows and seven healthy heads of grain, and they both represent seven years of prosperity. And the seven thin scrawny cows that come up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed this to Pharaoh in advance of what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt. But afterward, there will be a seven-year of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of good years will be erased. And as for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God and he will soon make them happen. Well, therefore, Pharaoh, this is what Joseph told him to do. Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. He should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so that there will be food in the cities. And that way, there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. So Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. And so Pharaoh asked his officials, can we find anyone else like this man, so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? And then Pharaoh said to Joseph, since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court and of all my people. You'll take orders from me only. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a higher rank than yours. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Dreams do come true. And God was with Joseph on the roller coaster, and he's still with them in Pharaoh's palace. And I love the fact that there are five things. We're going to talk about the first four and then the fifth one. But there are five things that were a part of this dream coming true. The first one was Joseph was given a public testimony to the Jehovah, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and now of Joseph. You see, it's not Joseph's knowledge of dreams that helped him interpret their meaning. It was his knowledge of God. And he was able to publicly testify to that. And then second, he was given power and position, just like in Potiphar's house and just like in the prison, but now he's second in charge only under Pharaoh. 
And three, he's given praise. It says that wherever he went, people would kneel down and bow low before him. And number four, he's given prosperity. He's given a home. He's given a wife. He tours the whole land of Egypt. And he has two sons. And I want to pick up in verse 51. And it says this. It says, Joseph named his older son Manasseh. For he said, God has made me forget all my troubles. And listen to this. Everyone in my father's family. And then Joseph named his second son Ephraim. And he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my grief. So Joseph is ready to forget and move on. (laughs) Would you be? I would be. But God isn't quite finished fulfilling the whole dream. And the fifth thing about his dream that came true was he had the privilege of forgiving and saving his family and the entire Israelite nation. Now in chapters 42 through 45, the account goes on, and I'm just gonna, we're just, we're not gonna read it, you'll have to go back and read it later on your own, but it's pretty incredible. So the famine was severe throughout the whole world, including Canaan, and Jacob sent his 10 brothers, excluding Rachel's younger son, Benjamin. He would not send him away, why? Because the last time he sent Joseph away, Rachel's son, he didn't come back. So he sends the ten brothers to go to Egypt for food. And since Joseph was the governor of all of Egypt, and he was in charge of selling the grain, the people, to everybody, it was to him that the brothers came. And Joseph recognized them immediately, but they didn't recognize him. He was not the same boy that they remember from 17 years ago. But Joseph recognized them. Think about the flood of emotion that's coming back. The last time Joseph had been with these brothers, and he, remember, he's forgotten, he's put them away. He's forgotten about them, or he wants to. <laughs> but here they are, and the last time he saw them, they were filled with jealousy filled with hatred, filled with anger towards him. He remembers staring at them in horror, the look on his face and on theirs as slave traders carried him away to Egypt. They attempted to destroy his life and they deceived his father about him for 20 years. What would you do? Well, Joseph puts them into prison for three days. And then he devises a well-crafted plan to put his brother through some strategic tests, some trying situations that they would have to kind of be similar to what they put him through to see if they had really changed. And you can read the rest of it on your own, but here are some highlights. The first thing is he overhears a discussion that they have about how God is repaying them for their evil actions against Joseph. He sees their guilt, their fear, and he learns part of the story that he had never heard before. And then he insists that before they could ever come back to get more grain, they would have to bring Benjamin with them. And so he sends them home. And he keeps Simeon. 
And they go back to Jacob and they says, no way. <laughs> I'm not sending him back. Benjamin is not going anywhere. We're just staying here. So I don't know how long it was, but, but Judah said they could have gone back and forth twice already in the amount of time that it took for Jacob to finally decide that he would let Benjamin go. And he says, it's so interesting, he says, Lord, you're in charge. I give you this, Joseph's already gone, Simeon's gone. If I lose my kids, so be it. But you're in control. And he sends Benjamin and the other ten brothers, or nine brothers, back. And when they get back, Joseph is overcome with emotion. And he finally reveals his true identity. We read about it in 45. Let's start at verse 3. He says, I am Joseph. He said to his brothers, is my father still alive? But his brothers were speechless. They were stunned to realize that Joseph was standing there in front of them. Please come closer, he said to them. So they came closer and he said again, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into slavery in Egypt. Don't be upset and don't be angry with yourselves for selling me to this place. It was God who sent me here ahead of you to present, to preserve your lives. This famine that has ravaged the land for two years will last five more years and there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God has sent me ahead of you to keep you and your families alive and to preserve many survivors. So it was God who sent me here, not you. And he is the one who has made me an advisor to Pharaoh the manager of his entire palace and the governor of all Egypt. And if you go on over to verse 24, it says that Joseph sent his brothers off and as they left, he called after them, don't quarrel about all this along the way. <laughs> I think that's funny. And they left Egypt and returned to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. And they say to him, and now this time they don't send it by messenger. This time they come to him in person. And they say, Joseph is still alive. And he's governor of all of Egypt. And Jacob was stunned at the news. And he couldn't believe it. But when they repeated to Jacob everything that Joseph had told them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him in, and their father's spirit, after 20 years, was revived. And then Jacob exclaimed, it must be true. My son Joseph is alive. And I must go see him before I die. And that's what they did. What lessons can we learn? I don't know how much time I have left, but we're going to just talk a couple of lessons here. The first one is that Joseph was not nominal. Now let me explain that word nominal. Nominal has three meanings. First one is in name only. The second one, something that's very small. And the third, something that's far below the real value or cost. And I, I submit to you this morning that Joseph was not nominal. He wasn't in name only a follower of God. He believed God. He felt God's presence with him. He knew that God was in control. He didn't have a nominal or a very small trust in God. His trust in God was big. 
And when it was small, I believe God grew it. And he didn't pay a nominal or a far below the real value or cost price in his fulfillment of God's plan. In Psalms chapter 105, it says that until the time came to fulfill his dreams, the Lord tested Joseph's character. And it was costly. It was hard. Joseph wasn't an average Joe. He wasn't a nominal follower of God. He didn't just say it, he lived it. He included God in everything. Joseph doesn't say much throughout these accounts, but when he does, it usually has God in it. When he was tempted, he wouldn't sin against God. When he was interpreting dreams in prison, it was God's business. And in front of Pharaoh, it's beyond my power, but God can tell you. And people took notice of this, that he was different, that he wasn't your average Joe, that they recognized that God's spirit was with them, and it was what made him the way he was. His heart and his mind were fixed on God. In the midst of the roller coaster, he anchored, he secured, he superglued himself into God. And through his covenant to his family, the testimony of God's faithfulness he had heard in his first 17 years, and the promise of God that God had given him, and of being part of it all, helped him to experience God at work firsthand. If Joseph had been nominal, just your average Joe, he would never have had the courage to share his dreams. He'd have never made it to Egypt. He'd have never withstood the temptation. He'd have never lived through the dungeon. He'd have never forgiven his brothers. And he would have never saved Israel by the power of God in his life. You see, God has a plan. He has a dream. He has a purpose for each one of us. But we'll never find it. It can never truly be fulfilled if we're just nominal. I encourage you today to be an above-average Joe. To let God work in you. And the last thing, second thing we learn, is that God is providential. And that just means that he divinely intervenes, and it's always at exactly the right time. God was with Joseph. There's cliff notes about Joseph's story, and I know we could have used those today, but I just couldn't. We had to read the scripture, all right? But it's found in Psalms 105, and then in Acts chapter 7. And I want to just read a couple of verses here from Acts chapter 7. It says, these patriarchs, the brothers, were jealous of his brother Joseph, and they sold him to be a slave in Egypt. But God was with them and rescued him from all his troubles. And God gave him favor before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And God also gave Joseph unusual wisdom. So Pharaoh appointed him governor over all of Egypt and put him in charge of his palace. And when the famine hit in the land of Canaan, there was great misery. Our ancestors ran out of food, so Jacob sent them to Egypt. And the second time that they went, Joseph revealed his identity to his brothers and they were introduced to Pharaoh. Now listen to this. I want you to hear this. 
Then Joseph sent for his father, Jacob, and all his relatives to come to Egypt, and there were about 75 persons in all. Now, God had called Jacob to be a great nation, and there were 75 of them. That's not a great nation. (laughs) But here's what happened. God, through his providential care, through his providential plan on Joseph's life, through raising him and taking him through all of those things, brought Israel, a nation of 75 people, living in a land of foreigners that didn't like them very much, down to Egypt where they were protected and put in a land where they could raise their sheep and they could just multiply and multiply without anybody touching them, for a few decades, and the next time we hear of them, they have over a million people in the Israelite nation. That's God. God did that. God did that through Joseph. You know what? God wants to do something amazing through you, and his providential care is working in your life. Romans 8 28 says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And in Genesis chapter 50, it's so amazing. Joseph, Jacob dies and and, and the brothers are consumed with fear. Uh Uh-oh, dad's gone. Joseph's going to kill us. He's going to get back at us. And this is what Joseph says. He says, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. And he brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. I bet you have a story of God's providential care in your life. Even if you're not following him today, I bet you have a story of God's providential care in your life. I have a few, but I'm not gonna, we're not going to go through them all. My brother, Don, was on a, he works on an oil platform, platform. About two years ago, he had a massive heart attack on the oil platform. And you would think that would be the worst place he could be, but by God's providential care, it was the best place he could be because they had one of those machines they could hook up, shock him, bring his heart back into rhythm and back into life because it was, it was gone. And they flew him out, got him to the hospital, and they told him, if you had been anywhere else, you would have died. That's God's providential care. Does it happen that way every time? No. And you know what? When we trust God and we know he's in control and we know him, It's okay, whatever the outcome, because God's in control, and you and I can trust him in every circumstance of life, whether big or small, God is providential. He's with you in a tangible way, and I encourage you to dig deep, not into the soil of yourself like our world tells us today to do. Find it in yourself. Pick up your, you know, do that. Have grit. No. Put your trust in God. Isaiah 26 
3 says, It will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. And I encourage you to do that. God is in control. Nothing surprises him. The world is not all there is. It will pass away, but God is eternal. God is just, and he will make things right. And God wants to use you like he did Joseph to make a difference in the world. Let's pray together. Lord, I just thank you for these verses, for this story of Joseph. Oh my goodness, there's so many things that we could learn and so much more that we could talk about. And God, I just pray that you have spoken today and that people, me, I'll trust you more and that you'll be able to use me to make a difference in the lives of people around me, that I won't be afraid, that I won't be afraid to speak the name of God like Joseph did in a very foreign, hostile country, but that I'll lift you up and praise you, and that many will come to know you. And we ask these things in your name.